Welcome to the Heme Consult Podcast, a weekly inspiration infusion for women of color and hematology. Dear woman of color and hematology, Heme Consults is your personal space to rest, recharge, and renew your spirit with a weekly infusion of inspiration from hematologist Dr. Toyasi Anwemena. Every Sunday, Dr. Anwemena will remind you that you are a superstar and have everything you need to succeed in your incredible career as a hematologist. Welcome to the Hematology Sisterhood that will transform your world. Welcome to the Heme Consult Podcast. I am your host, Tayasi Anwemena, hematologist, physician scientist, educator, and more. Today's episode is a bonus episode called Take Charge of the Sound, and it is dedicated to a woman named Michelle. Since today's episode marks the first bonus episode, I am going to take a moment and introduce it. So this podcast is new, and this process is still evolving. However, in developing it, I have a strategic plan. <laughs> And this strategic plan outlines the monthly themes and um, podcast titles through the end of the year. So you may have noticed that in January, my theme is in the beginning. For that reason, when I have an idea for a podcast episode that comes to me that doesn't fit within the themes and the titles that I've already outlined for the year, then it becomes a bonus episode. And subsequent years of this podcast, I may take a bonus episode and expand it to become its own theme for a month. But for now, I'm using these bonus episodes as a middle-of-the-week pick-me-up. And these happen infrequently, so they're not posted regularly, because they're inspired by current events, and they're usually addressed to a specific woman of color who needs a particular word of encouragement. Now, I need to take a step back and and remind you (laughs) of why I started this podcast in the first place. Now, I want to take a minute and remind you of why I started this podcast in the first place. Now, this podcast came to be because of a prevailing lie that there are not enough people interested in hematology. And I now know that to be a lie because what I am seeing is a ton of young people, especially women of color, who are interested in hematology because of a personal experience with a blood disorder. Many of them have personal family experiences with sickle cell disease, some with hemophilia, and many with iron deficiency anemia. But what happens is when they come to hematology, they are discouraged from the field. And people say, hey, this field is hard. Go somewhere else. Go find a field with better prospects. There are not enough people here. There are not enough mentors. And it's not true. But I see this to be the prevailing narrative. And it's a narrative that I was given as well. I was told that people people didn't, you know, really go into benign hematology specifically. There are not enough mentors. I would be better served in oncology where there were so many more opportunities and so on and so forth. But I discovered over time that it's not true. Hematology is actually a field filled with fantastic opportunity (laughs) as soon as you can get past the lies. And the reason it's important to get past the lies is that young women of color who come to hematology come with passion and a burning sense of purpose. They've personally experienced devastating consequences of blood disorders, and they want to do something about it. They want to be empowered to enter into a space where they can make real change happen. And maybe it was too, it's too late for their loved one, 
but they want to make change happen for someone else. Some women have lost brothers, sisters, friends, neighbors, church members, and they come to hematology to do something about it. And so that's the challenge when, despite all of this interest that I see, there's a false sense of scarcity. And the, the prevailing language in the field is that there are not enough people interested in hematology. But these young women come, their passion gets extinguished, and they're turned away from the field long before they're able to make the kind of impact that they actually want to make. Or if they stay in the field long enough, and people help them find a more popular or more fundable project to work on and move them away from a mission focus into a mundane, hey, this is what everybody likes focus. And I know this to be true because it happened to me. First, people try to convince me that hematology didn't hold many prospects for me as a specialty. And then when I chose the specialty against their prevailing advice, they tried to lock me into a 100% clinical job where I wouldn't have the kind of research impact that I actually wanted to have. And then when finally this research thing was going to work, they tried to lock me into a project in cardiology that had nothing to do with the impact area that I really was targeting. And for this reason, I've come to believe that this scarcity that exists in hematology is actually a false scarcity. I mean, it's a really uh, effective strategy because there are a lot of people who are actually making change. They're, 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 they're taking a detour into a different specialty. But it actually is a false scarcity. I see before me many women of color who want to change the world through hematology. But what they first have to do is cut through the noise and fight many battles just to get there. And so that's why I come to this space of this podcast. I'm here to be an encourager. I'm here to be a truth teller. And I'm here to bring light. I can't be everywhere at every institution to encourage women of color everywhere in hematology. But I can put sound waves out into the air to change the narrative and hope that as many people as need to find my voice can find it so that they can hear words of creation <laughs> words to create new possibilities in their career because words of creation are never limited to the location in which they were first spoken. Therefore, this podcast came to be so that I can reach women of color in hematology wherever they are and remind them about their why. Therefore, when I hear of an actual event impacting a specific woman of color in hematology, I develop an episode specifically for their encouragement. If you hear an episode that encourages you and you can think of another woman of color in hematology who needs to hear it, please forward it to them. Because this space is really about encouraging people to take back their power and make change happen. The change that they actually first came to hematology to make. All right, that was the introduction to this bonus episode. Now let's focus on the actual bonus episode. And this episode is especially dedicated to a woman I've come to know and love whose name is Michelle. Fortunately for me, there are many Michelles in my life <laughs> and many Michelles out there. So she remains completely anonymous. And if your name is Michelle and you're not sure I'm talking to you, I am talking to you because if your name is Michelle, this episode is especially for you. And the title of today's episode, as I have said, is Take Control of the Sound. And the theme scripture for this episode is 1 Samuel chapter 17. The story I will share today spans my life from childhood to adulthood in hematology. Actually, this is, it spans up to my residency program. 
But I grew up in a family where I was taught that anything was possible. The sky is the limit, my father told me. You can do anything. Now, growing up in the 80s in a patriarchal society in which women did not have equal access to opportunity, my father told me that women could be doctors. You know, at that point, I'd actually never met a woman who was a doctor. But he told me that they could be, and I believed him. And I was like, I will become a doctor. He told me that there was nothing I could not do, and I believed him. My entire childhood was a fulfillment of these words of prophecy because there was no challenge I encountered that I did not overcome. I took on challenges because he told me that I could. I grew up fearless and without any doubt about my ability to succeed. And succeed I did. I excelled in middle and high school. I earned high honors. I won awards. People would meet my mom and dad and get excited because they were like, you're Tayosi's mom and dad. <laughs> my father was especially proud when people wanted to get to know him just because of me. So there are people who met my parents because they first knew me. So that was my childhood and early adolescence. I rocked my world because my family created space for me to believe that I could. This is the recurring theme of my life. <laughs> and then I moved to the United States for college. When I first started, I planned to do a double major in biology and chemistry because chemistry up until this point was my first love. Oh my goodness, I loved, loved, loved chemistry. And I knew I was going to be a chemistry major. There was just no question in my mind. But then I needed biology courses for my pre-med requirements. And, you know, there was enough biology in there that I was like, why don't I just combine the two and do chemistry, which is what I really want to do, and then do biology as a second major. And then I kill two birds with one stone. Perfect. But as a transfer student, and I, I had credits from Nigeria, I needed to first meet with a pre-med counselor. And so I did. This was not a warm and fuzzy pre-med counselor. This was a dry, matter-of-fact, to-the-point, just-the-facts-ma'am kind of pre-med counselor. <laughs> and when I told her about my brilliant idea to do a double major in biology and chemistry, she frowned really deeply. And she was like, you want to go to med school and do a double major in biology and chemistry? Oof. Mm. Oh, that's too hard. That's too hard because your grades are going to be poor and you're not going to get in. And so this was the first time in my life that I had ever heard anybody tell me that there was something I had set out to do that would not be possible for me. And I was devastated. See, I was 19 years old in a brand new country, and I just never heard it before, that there was something I had said I would do, but then someone who was like in a position of authority in my life told me that I shouldn't do it because I wouldn't be able to. And it actually really affected me. Like I reeled from that episode. I just, I was, I was just down. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to be able to do this. And all of a sudden, fear and doubt started to pour in, and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't think straight. I was really sad. Because I really love chemistry, and I, I couldn't see a place in my life where chemistry wouldn't exist. I didn't care as much for biology, but I mean, I just, it made sense to do the biology as well. But I couldn't imagine life without chemistry, so I wasn't sure what I would do. Well, fortunately for me, my next stop from the pre-med counselor's office was actually the math teacher, a guy named Joe. And Joe had never met me before. 
but he had a sense that there was something wrong and he asked me about it. Oh my goodness, he was human. He just asked me about it. And, and I told him, I told him my dilemma. I said, oh my gosh, this is what the pre-med counselors told me and what do I do? And Joe was like, oh, that's not much of a dilemma. For him, it was actually a matter of a practical experiment. He was like, why don't you just sign up for both? If it turns out that you can't manage the two, then you just drop one. And all of a sudden, I could see a possibility again. And of course, it just made perfect sense. I would just do both. And then I would see what happened. A well, long story short, I ended up doing both majors and I graduated magna cum laude. <laughs> My 1C, really 1C, maybe it was a D, I don't recall, was in physical chemistry. That was a tough course. But anyway, I had a successful undergraduate career, near miss, because if I had just believed this practical person who was clearly stating facts from her perspective, I would have taken possibly a different path. Well, let's now fast forward to my internal medicine residency program, where I started to receive some interesting evaluative feedback. And this is not positive evaluative feedback. It was largely negative, at least from my perspective. Perhaps from the perspective of the evaluators, they were like, yeah, this is formative feedback. <laughs> from my perspective, it was destructive feedback. I'm like, I don't know if you think this is formative. I think it's destructive. For example, in one of my first rotations as an intern, like I will tell you, I was just covering the weekend and I got verbal feedback from this guy. Somebody, a patient crashed in the middle of that weekend. It was my first weekend covering. I, I just, I don't recall. But anyway, I was, it was my first weekend covering. And this person happened to be the attending whose team I was helping cover. Anyway, he gave me verbal feedback. And, um, and he told me, you know, I, I just didn't see anything special about you. You, you were kind of just maybe average. <laughs> oh my goodness. As an attending who now gives formative feedback, you know, I would recognize that as not formative feedback, but rather harsh judgment. Um, anyway. Commentary aside, that was, that was the, the feedback that I recall. For another rotation, I actually didn't get verbal feedback. I didn't see this one coming. I received written feedback. And it was from a fellow who had supervised me in our cardiology ICU rotation. And she wrote in this feedback form, and I don't remember the exact details, so this is really a loose paraphrase. And it was essentially, Tennessee's fund of knowledge is so poor but what is worse is that she has no idea just how bad she is. <laughs> I'm not lying. I am not lying. I mean, the piece that I will never forget is that she was like, she is so bad. She doesn't even know it. That's what's so bad about her. Like she just doesn't even know how bad she is. And I remember reading that evaluation and being devastated. I mean, honestly, I could taste the venom dripping from the evaluation. I could tell that she thought it was so bad that she was totally disgusted that a person like me would be allowed to even be close to a hospital, let alone be in medicine. Well, you get the point. You get enough evaluations like that in residency, and you get called in to see the residency program director. And there were many allegations against me. I was slow. I wasn't efficient. I just didn't know as much as I should. And so one of the interventions that my program director came up with was to pair me with a former chief resident as a mentor. And honestly, that probably was the best thing for me because in her, I found someone who was like my math teacher from college who had some practical advice for me. Susanna told me 
Well, if the problem is that you don't have enough funded knowledge, then you just need to have a plan for your reading. And, and Suzanne gave me tangible advice. And what's notable is that she didn't say, well, you're a horrible person. You should give up now. She essentially said, you know, practical challenges need practical solutions. Just go read a textbook of medicine. All right, fast forward now to the end of my residency program. And this time I was a senior resident on a new gen med rotation. So this rotation was created because at the time, the 80-hour workweek limit was really starting nationally to be strictly enforced. And my institution was one of those institutions that was kind of like in the national limelight. Like, you guys go wrong. <laughs> we will put you on probation. It was a big deal. And so they made up this brand new rotation where they took away overnight call from the senior resident. And now the senior resident would work six 12-hour days. And so six 12-hour days gets you to just be a little bit shy of the 80 work week. And if you, actually, it was, it was more like 13-hour days. But anyway, you were just shy of 80 so that you had a little bit of wiggle room, potentially. The interns still, still took overnight call, and they did so with a night float resident. And then they left immediately after presenting the patient, so they didn't have to do the former 30-hour call that we had been doing. So now the whole team would meet together to learn about the patients, including the attending. And to make this fit within the 80 hours for the resident, the expectation would, was that there would be no pre-work. So the day started at 7 a.m. You just came in, and you, you know, received sign-out, and then the day started. Well, the problem with this structure is that it, is, it takes time to learn about new patients, especially when you don't admit them yourself. And so you come to the day, everybody is new, and you first of all have to read about them. And, you know, I mean, they tell you about them, but it's a different, it's just a different experience. Someone you admitted you know well, as opposed to someone you're told about. And for the day to run efficiently, you actually already need to have a plan starting in the morning so that, you know, CT is scheduled at 9 a.m., MRI at 10.30, ultrasound at 11. And that's the only day you ensure that you maximize the value of that day and that it's not just like a hurry up and wait day for the patient and that lengthens their admission time. So I knew that if we were going to be efficient, oops, that buzzword again, um, that people had said I was not. I knew that I actually needed to have a solid plan of action for every patient as soon as the day started. So that was my goal. I knew that if I didn't do that, I would hear these words come back to me. Inefficient, not engaged, not interested. Those kinds of things that have been coming up, you know, every so often. And I just, I, I knew, I knew it was coming into a hard rotation. I knew by now, like I wasn't, under any illusion that I was in a safe environment where people were going to give me the benefit of the doubt, I knew I would be judged and I knew I'd be judged harshly. I was ready to prepare for this judgment. And so I came up with my own strategy. I decided that if my team was going to run efficiently in the way I wanted it to run, I would have a plan ready for the interns to execute the moment we arrived in the morning. So to execute this plan, the official day is supposed to start at 7 a.m., but each day I would arrive two hours early by 5 a.m. And sometimes I arrived earlier, like 4 a.m. And I would first review all the patients who had been admitted overnight and what the labs were, what the plan of care was. And then the second thing I would do was read about their disease pathophysiology and make sure that I understood it cold. And then the third thing I would do is develop a teaching lesson based on each admitted patient. A lot of work. But when I was ready to round at 7.30 a.m. with the attending, not only did I have a plan of care for each patient that day, but I also had a teaching point to share for the entire team from memory without notes. Mm -hmm. 
At the end of each workday, I would officially sign out at 7 p.m. Then I would head down to the bunker to help my underrepresented minority medical student prepare his presentations for the next day. I'd re review the list of patients for the day, and then I would formul formulate a plan of care for the next day. If it was a good day and things were going according to plan, I'd be heading home each day at about 10 p.m. So early start to the day, late end to the day. I did this for six weeks. That was my schedule. No, I wasn't getting enough sleep, but I wasn't here on this rotation for sleep. I was on this rotation to make a statement. Every morning I drove to work, I played only one song on repeat. It's a song by Merriam-Webster called Made Me Glad. And for six weeks of this grueling schedule, I played that song on repeat daily. I didn't even switch it out. And that song encouraged me, it gave me hope, and it told me that I could. And so, with that song playing in my ears nonstop, I knew, I just knew, that nothing would be impossible for me. You know what? I nailed the rotation. Mm -hmm. Surely people tried, but they couldn't find a bad report about me. In fact, I had impressed them all. One of the attendings, who is a very vocal person and actually was quite prominent at our institution, he just couldn't stop talking about me to everyone. Whoa, that Toyosi, whoa, she's always teaching. She knows exactly what to do. She knows the patients backwards and forwards. Nothing gets past her. Toyosi, whoa. <laughs> ah, everywhere he went, he talked me up. I think he was especially impressed because he had been told I was one of the average ones. You know, I was mediocre. And so kind of like the impression he was given of me versus what I showed up to be was different. <laughs> So it blew him out of the water. And for me, I went through that rotation with a sense of, you think I'm mediocre? You think I'm mediocre? I'll show you mediocrity. I was fueled by the knowledge that I would defy every expectation. And you know what? I did. Yeah. At the end of those six weeks, I was exhausted. <laughs> I could barely move. In fact, I was so tired I couldn't even breathe. I could barely breathe. It was an impossible six weeks, but I achieved my goal. I overcame a barrier that was designed to trip me up. I permanently changed the narrative. And not just for the people evaluating me, but most importantly, I changed the narrative for myself. So now I'm going to pause the story and share some important lessons that come to me from this space. And the first lesson I want to share is to recognize when it's time for a defining fight. So when I came to this gen med rotation, there was a mountain of judgment against me. The prevailing narrative against me was that I was mediocre, inefficient, had a poor fund of knowledge. I mean, there was enough of this negative story that had begun to form around me that I couldn't actually ignore it. So, so which person was I? Was I the person from early childhood and college who could do anything? Or was I the one who was so bad that I didn't even know how bad I was? I had nothing to prove to anybody but myself. I was fueled for those six weeks, not by the hope of a good evaluation. I didn't even care about my evaluators. I was fueled for those six weeks by the recognition that a challenge had been set before me that I needed to overcome. That was a challenge that I needed to step up and face. And at the end of that six-week challenge, I walked away knowing that forever and ever, nothing would be impossible for me. But it had always been that way. I had always known that truth. I knew it since I was a child, because my father had told me. 
But somewhere along the way, I had stopped believing it because I started listening to a different voice. And that brings me to lesson number two. When the sound of discouragement prevails in your environment, it changes what you believe. When people started spinning a narrative that I could not, did not, was not, that I was poor, that I was weak, at first I didn't believe them. But then over time, with enough of these voices coming together or repeating the same thing over and over again, I started to believe it. I forgot about all the evidence that I had stacked up in my past that was contrary to what people were saying. I forgot about all the challenges I had overcome, how difficult things had, had worked out because I stayed with it. I, I forgot about the intelligent, persevering, wonderful person that I was. And I started to listen to voices of a narrative about my mediocrity. And as I started to listen to that narrative, it changed my belief. And my new unbelief changed my behavior. <laughs> I started to unwittingly fulfill the prophecies surrounding me. I started to feel mediocre. And the sound of discouragement around me was changing what I believed to be true about myself. And so I also was changing into an unbeliever of Toyosi and her possibilities. And for me to go back to my first belief, I needed to first change the sound that I was hearing. And that leads me to lesson number three. To recover my true narrative, I needed to take control of the sound in my environment. For me to remember who I was, I needed to first silence the sound of discouragement and create a new sound of possibility. For my entire rotation, the sound consistently playing in my head as I played that song was a sound of possibility. You can. You will. Nothing is hard for you. You can do all things. Therefore, without sound playing in my head, I went above and beyond the expectations of an environment that had been set up to prove me mediocre. The bar had been set super high, and I was being lured into a false sense of security. Oh, please come. Don't do any pre-work. We won't judge you. The atmosphere was clearly an environment of judgment. I was not in a safe space of acceptance. And so, to combat that environment, I took control of the sound by creating my own sound. And the sound I created was a sound of possibility. And today, the sound of possibility is the only sound I listen to. In my life today, I silence every sound that does not line up with my fundamental belief that anything I choose is possible. With those lessons in mind, what is my call to action? My first call to action is that you silence every negative sound over your life. I want you to pay attention to who's talking to you and what they're saying. And for every negative voice that is not the voice of truth, I want you to silence them. Please don't kill anybody. <laughs> but to silence them means that you stop listening to their voice. Let them keep talking. Just don't be there to hear it. Refuse to listen any longer to any sound that paints you as weak, incompetent, predetermined, and unchangeable, even when that sound comes in the guise of formative, evaluative feedback and a cloak of objectivity. True learning environments do not judge you. They create space for your growth. 
Therefore, do not accept any judgment against you. And if there are sounds in your environment that you must tolerate for a season, then call to action number two is for you. Call number two is to amplify the sound of truth until it drowns out all other sound. Amplify the sound of truth until it drowns out all other sound. For every negative sound that you must tolerate a little while longer, I want you to amplify the sound of possibility until it drowns out all other sound. Amplify the sound of truth about your powerful inner potential and capability. Find the song that tells you that you can do it and play it on repeat until it resonates deep in your spirit. Find the mentors that show you possibility and hang with them until you have the same kind of faith in yourself that they do. Get with people who believe in you and just get their faith on you. (laughs) Create your own sound and space of possibility so that no matter what people say, you always recognize what is true. Amplify the sound of truth until it is the only sound you hear. Call to action number three is to step up and fight. The fight is not for them, it's for you. You have nothing to prove to them, but everything to prove to yourself. You step up and fight because you need to recover for yourself the sense of awe and wonder with which you started. You stand up and fight because you need to rediscover the possibility of your potential, who you are, what you came to do. You stand up and fight because you deserve the win for you, your community, and the world around you. You step up and fight because there is a fight you fight one time. You will never have to fight it again. The fight before you is humongous. But the secret of your win is that you do not fight alone. Your fight is a fight of the universe fighting alongside you. That ends today's episode, Michelle. I feel as if I've told you all I came to say. For everyone else who's not named Michelle, (laughs) thank you for listening. Let's continue the conversation online at coatcoach.com. I'll see you next time.